Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I am really excited to introduce the CEO of U.S. Lacrosse, Steve Stenerson, to the Philacrosophy podcast. Steve has been with U.S. Lacrosse as the president and CEO since 2008, was part of the uh, actual uh, transition from the Lacrosse Foundation uh, where he had been executive director since 1984 all the way till 1998, in which they merged with a bunch of governing bodies to create U.S. lacrosse, which has been the most powerful vehicle for growth and development in the sport. Uh, Steve is a graduate of North Carolina and won two national championships in 90, 1981 and 82, and really what were some glory years for Carolina lacrosse. Uh, a native of Baltimore, uh, Steve went to St. Paul's and has really been a part of the lacrosse community for a lot of years. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show and thanks for agreeing to come on. Jamie, great to be here. Thank you for having me. The Philacrosby podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There is no question that video is a critical part to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com today. Fantastic. So I usually start off these podcasts, Steve, with um, hearing a little bit about the lacrosse journey of, of our uh, uh, those who come on the show. And I would love it if you would... I did sort of sum it up there briefly, but I would love it if you went into a little bit of detail about, you know, your lacrosse journey and how it ties into really the history of U.S. lacrosse, because the history of U.S. lacrosse and Steve Stenerson are, are hip and hip. And so I would love, to, I think our listeners would love to hear, um, you know, a little bit about your journey from St. Paul's to Carolina to, to lacrosse foundation and all the way through. And, 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 and by the way, we love hearing about mentors along the way as, as well. Yeah, no, my, my pleasure. Um, you know, everybody has his or her own path through the game. And mine started when I was very young. I happened to go to a school, uh, St. Paul's, from K to, K to 12. And uh, St. Paul's has a very deep lacrosse tradition. It goes back uh, many, many years. And, in fact, I was introduced to the sport when I was in third grade. Uh, we had a field day uh, for the lower school at St. Paul's. And lacrosse was always part of field day. And uh, I was enamored. Uh, like many, I learned to play with a wooden stick. And um, I was just really uh, just caught up in the sport from the first time I was uh, exposed to it. And a big part of that, I think, were the coaches that I had, the, the folks that taught me how to catch and throw initially. Um, but then as I went through middle school and upper school, I, uh, it was one of the sports I played. I was a three-sport athlete in, in high school. I uh, played football, basketball, and lacrosse, and really liked all three for different reasons. But lacrosse was the, the real sport, uh, the, the, the one sport that I was really drawn to. And uh, I was very fortunate to uh, 
thought about playing football in, in college. I would, would not have been a Division One football guy. If I was, I'd be a third-string tight end or something like that, but really set on lacrosse. And uh, in those days, I joke, I applied to two schools, Hobart and Chapel Hill. And uh, don't ask me why I applied to, to Hobart. They had a great lacrosse tradition, great school. Uh, the main reason I applied to Chapel Hill was because they had a great journalism school, and I wanted to get an undergraduate degree in journalism was, and was very fortunate to be able to get in school there and, and pursue that undergraduate degree. Um, but like, like many, uh, my family had its share of, of, of family dysfunction, and through some really hard times, team sports generally and lacrosse specifically, and again, more importantly, the, the coaches and the mentors uh, that were connected to my lacrosse experience really got me through some very challenging times, as did my teammates. And so I got out of Carolina, uh, a very average player on great teams. Uh, my timing was impeccable in terms of uh, being able to, to be on those teams with incredible players and be just a small role player on those teams. And um, uh, I was looking for, you know, my career. I wanted to be a writer. Uh, I was talking to a New York Times reporter last week, in fact, up in New York, and I said, I wanted to be you, but never made it. And um, But when I was 24, Jamie, the, I was working for a small publishing house in Baltimore, a very small publisher, and the executive director position for the Lacrosse Foundation, the organization you referenced in your, in your intro, uh, came open. And I applied for that job and got it. And um, I didn't know what I was doing at age 24, but I knew that I was, I wanted to be involved in, in helping other kids have the opportunities and experiences that I had through the sport. And that's kind of was the start of what has been a 34 year career in lacrosse administration. Amazing. And, and, and was part of the draw when you first applied for that job was because you were a writer in lacrosse magazine. Was that, was that even, or was that something that you started after having uh, become the executive director? But no, the, you're, you've done, you've done, you've done your research. I mean, one of those, one of the publications that this small publisher actually produced uh, via contract for the lacrosse foundation was lacrosse magazine. So I, I worked a little bit on some book publishing and some and some periodical public publishing and and was also the editor of Lacrosse magazine with this this firm Nichols Publishing at the time, and that kind of turned me on to be just being aware of the Lacrosse Foundation, an organization that dated its history back to 1957. I was really focused initially on um, honoring the game's greatest players and contributors to the Hall of Fame, but it had high aspirations. I think the budget for the organization when I got there was something like $100,000 uh, to be the Sports National Development Center. So, um, so yeah, that, that, that experience with the publishing house and, uh, and through Lacrosse Magazine really opened my eyes to that opportunity. So take us through, you know, the, the 80s and into the 90s when, you know, from a lot of different angles as far as the growth of the game, um, the popularity of the game, and how, you know, you guys transitioned from uh, the Lacrosse Foundation into what we know now as U.S. Lacrosse. Yeah, um, as I said, I was a 24-year-old kind of walking into a situation in which it was uh, essentially, uh, I was the 
only full-time employee. We had a you know, part-time uh, administrator and, um, and a board of directors that at the time was heavily Baltimore-based, even though the organization uh, aspired to, to national scope. And, you know, this was before computers, Jamie, and, you know, we, we, the organization had members who were essentially, um, you know, contributors to the organization, and all the records for the members were kept on cards, you know, index cards, <laughs> which some of your listeners probably don't know what they are, but uh, all handwritten membership and and donation records and we you know uh, we had at some point a a computer called a Bernoulli box which had a disc that was about the size of a marbleized notebook um uh, it it was uh, very interesting and and i was fortunate enough and you ask who some of my mentors are the two guys um who hired me a guy named jim greaves who played at virginia and a guy named mickey webster who played at hopkins as we started to grow the lacrosse foundation and we did uh, the lacrosse foundation grew fairly significantly built a met national member program built the budget up uh, more significantly and really started to be able to implement some programs and resources that uh, were a little bit more advanced and really uh, supported the, uh, the game's growth and development uh, in a more meaningful way nationally and then in the 90s you know in the early 90s uh, it started in 1992, as a matter of fact. We, I was fortunate enough to be part of a discussion about where is the game going to be in the next 25 years, and and what what do we need in order to make sure the game is growing and vibrant um, in 25 years? You know, it's it's tough. Most people don't think about uh, look that far in the future. Even today, in our sport, most people aren't looking. At where the, where the game's going to be in 25 years, they're looking for today, tomorrow, and maybe next week. Right. But we brought uh, a pretty interesting group of folks together, stakeholders in the game, in 1992 at Princeton University, um, and there were college coaches and administrators, and and we uh, uh, we had this kind of full day facilitated session about, you know, what organizations currently existed in the game, what type of investment, um, what kind of strategic priorities for the sport over time. And really that in 1992, Jamie, was the first meeting that really resulted in the idea of having a unified national organization through which uh, investment could be aggregated uh, to, to really make more meaningful difference in the game's growth and development um, and, and through which a, a more a broader strategic plan for the sport could be developed and, and executed. And it took six years uh, until 1998 when U.S. Lacrosse was formed. January 1st, uh, 1998 was our first year. Uh, eight organizations kind of unified, uh, merged, if you will, Lacrosse Foundation being one of them, uh, to form this new national governing body. And it was been often described as a leap of faith. A lot of organizations, uh, the U.S. Women's Lacrosse Association, the U.S. Lacrosse Coaches Association, and others, um, had been around for a long time. And you know, the uni- making the decision as the president of those respective organizations to, you know, to merge, to cease operation and merge into an unknown entity was a big leap. And then further, the unification of men's and women's lacrosse, two different disciplines, under one organization was a tremendous leap of faith. So um, it's been it's been quite a quite a ride of the last, we're now in our 21st year. Um, still, 
we've come a long way, but have a long way to go to reach our potential to lead and serve. Really interesting. Um, we haven't spoken in, a, in, in, in some time. <clears throat> the last time I think we spoke, you know, we still had issues like early recruiting and the whole, you know, proliferation of club over rec, you know, was really becoming uh, kind of dominant and, and particularly in certain hotbeds. And um, this game has been called the fastest growing game for a lot of years. I would love to hear right now from you a uh, sort of a state of the game um, as it relates to, uh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, I mean, it, the game is um, is in a great place, I think. I mean, the, the challenge today is the same challenge as I kind of described back in 1992 when we were saying, where is the game going to be in 25 years? Where do we want it to be in 25 years? And, and what, are, what do we need to put in place in order to assure that we get close to those 25-year goals? And as I like to say, I actually had a meeting up in New Jersey yesterday, where I made the point is, um, you know, our real goal as an organization, it's gotten more complicated and, and broader and deeper uh, over the years. But our primary goal is really to get to 2x, right? We got 850,000 active players, give or take, in, in the United States today, men, women, all ages. How do we get to 1.7 million, right? Core participants, how do we really grow our sport and what what needs to be in place in order to do so? And, and now, as much as the sport has grown throughout the uh, late 90s and 2000s, what we're seeing is a flattening of that growth. Um, not, you know, it's not, uh, we're not losing players, but we're, we're, uh, we're, we're kind of taking players, bringing in new players as fast as we're losing players. And, and that growth has flattened. And the question is why, and there's some, you know, all lacrosse is one of the few sports that has held its own in recent years. Nationally, youth sport participation generally has been on the decline over the last decade. Um, and you can point to more common, um, you know, kind of reasons for that. Um, you know, birth rates are down. And so you're seeing a little bit of, you know, just fewer kids. Um, you're seeing competition for, you know, your cell phone and uh, social media and video gaming and things of that nature. But the real challenge, the larger challenge from a public health standpoint is just sedentary children and kind of record levels of obese children in America today and, and, and the various um, maladies that come from, from, from childhood obesity, high blood pressure, et cetera. So it, it really, the, the decline in youth sports participation generally is a huge public health issue. And U.S. Lacrosse is one of many organizations working uh, with, um, uh, with, a, with a number of organizations to, to try to address that issue. But specific to our sport, as I said, participation is flattening. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think that, um, and, and they're all, um, None of, them, none of them are fatal, but they're things that we have to address. I mean, I, I've also said that I think, Jane, you know, today lacrosse may be less accessible than it's ever been. And, you know, you hinted on it a little bit. We've often talked about lacrosse as 
uh, men's game particularly, uh, not necessarily women's game, is, you know, it's, it, the equipment is expensive. It's not soccer. It's not football or ice hockey, but it's not soccer. And so that investment in equipment is an impediment. Um, you know, we used to look at, uh, you know, public and town programs, which uh, have been and continue to be critical to the game's growth and development because they're really where you can introduce the sport at a very low uh, cost. Uh, those town programs and, and rec programs, uh, they're still around, but they're a bit threatened these days um, because obviously, um, as you mentioned, the, the uh, you know, more private clubs have emerged and, and sport, youth sport generally has become privatized um, in, over the last decade and lacrosse is no exception. But what that's done is, is increased for some the cost of participation. And, and for others, it's created an impression, an image, that in order to play youth lacrosse, you have to be a member of a club. And in order to be a member of a club, the time and financial commitment is, um, is at a level that many families can't afford. So I think part of, part of the privatization of lacrosse is there's a practical issue, but there's also an image issue. Uh, because town programs and rec programs are still alive and well and as critical as ever. So the entry point for lacrosse, in my opinion, still needs to be those more public, publicly accessible programs that serve such a vital role in, in introducing and, and developing a love of the game among young players. And, and then the, the clubs obviously provide a role for, for the more advanced player, the more passionate player who's looking for a little bit more. But I think that the privatization of youth lacrosse specifically has been, and the image that comes with that, in addition to the reality of that, has, uh, has been one, I think, significant uh, reason why we're seeing a, a, a bit of a decline in participation. I think we're seeing uh, wonderful opportunities, however, for clubs and community programs to collaborate. You know, I referenced the meeting I had in New Jersey yesterday about that very issue, meeting with a large community lacrosse league leader and a large uh, kind of a best practice club leader talking about how community programs and club programs can collaborate. Um, community programs are essential and the health and welfare and growth of community programs, as I explained, is essential to the sport's continued growth. Um, uh, club programs aren't going anywhere. They're getting stronger and better. Um, and so the importance of collaboration between what some believe are two opposites, um, you know, there is, there is some conflict between clubs and community programs, but I believe that both are play important roles in our sport and we, we need to find ways for those two, those two very important components of the building blocks of our sport to work together and collaborate to grow the base, to get to that 2x participation in the next 25 years. Really fascinating stuff. And it leads me into a topic that I talk about in this podcast all the time. And, and um, I think it's, I really feel like it's the, it's, 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 uh, it's the missing piece that we used to have. And that is, it's the death of the sandlot, in my opinion, that has really hurt the all sports in all participation 
Um, you know, you and I grew up in an era where we played the majority of our sports with our friends and we did play competitive sports and I did play rec lacrosse. Uh, I did play high school sports, but it, 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 the coach that I would have in seventh and eighth grade or sixth grade or ninth grade wasn't going to make or break me because I played the sport so much that I had this passion for it and I got good at it. Our sport in lacrosse, we don't really have, there are pickup sports that they play. Uh, certainly the model that the Iroquois use is backyard lacrosse and they play more backyard lacrosse than any other population. And they are also per capita, the strongest population of, of world-class producing world-class players and a love of the game. And what we have now is this, it used to be that you, you had the Sandlot model, you had the pass it down model where you kind of learn stuff from the, the older guys in summer league and you had the coaching model and the coaching model had its place. It's where you play games. It's, it's what gave you the excitement. Uh, but it wasn't it now that if you've got the, the, a, an incredible coach from an incredible program, then you've got a massive advantage over everybody else. Whereas if we all played, if these kids would play in the street, if they would play in the backyard, if they would play with a small net, like, you know, with a three by three net, you know, the game three by, you know, the Lloyd Thacker, I'm sure you've heard of it. I mean, this is like the Hillgartner brothers introduced this to me 20, 20 years ago. This is what our game, in my opinion, needs more so than anything else. I think all the coach education, I'm passionate about it, but nothing can compete with the Sandlot. And if there was one thing that I could do to change this game, it would be to try to get people to understand that you could become world-class in your backyard. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it syncs directly with what we call our lacrosse athlete development model and that you've probably read a little bit about, but it's all about kind of reimagining uh, the youth lacrosse experience. And, you know, in most sports, if not all sports, you know, youth, the youth form of the game is simply – you know, a, a, a slight modification of the adult form. Um, and only recently in sport, and lacrosse is, was uh, one of the earlier adopters, certainly not the earliest adopter of, of the concept that we, we need to reimagine the youth sports experience um, and base it on a child's physical and development uh, stage. So um, to your point, it, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to play 10 on 10 at age seven right, on a full field, uh, because among other things, the kids' brains haven't evolved to be able to understand depth perception, right? Uh, so, I mean, there's, a, so reimagining the youth lacrosse experience, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Our lacrosse athlete development model really focuses on really small-sided versions of the game, fewer players, smaller field, much more, watch the ball, less coaching, more enjoying as a player. Um, you know, I think, you know, at the highest level, it's become a coach's game uh, rather than a player's game. And, and that happens when uh, the stakes are greater. Um, and uh, I, I completely agree. I think we're seeing youth sports generally are seeing, you know, uh, and lacrosse is no exception to this, is, is seeing – kind of record uh, uh, burnout, you know, year-round play, sports specialization at an early age is a problem in youth sports generally and in our sport as well. Kids are burning out sooner. You're seeing kids come in and out of the game at a faster rate. They're not sticking around as long. And I, part of it is it's just not as fun and that we're uh, kind of, I think, um, enforcing 
not enforcing, but we're projecting adult values uh, on youth players. Uh, that structure, the overstructuring of practice, to your point, and focusing on you know minute aspects of the game at too young an age, rather than just creating uh, you know forms of the game that are more suited for kids to have fun. Um, and sadly, I think in youth sports generally, lacrosse specifically, you know, adults are you know adults are defining youth lacrosse experience uh, without focusing on the youth part of the equation. Right. So, you know, and, you know, we've gotten to a point in youth sports generally where, you know, some believe more is better, you know. So, you know, in order to be a great lacrosse player, you know, at age seven, hey, you better sports specialize, you better give up other sports, or at least you better be playing lacrosse nine, 10, 11 months a year because you won't be as good a player uh, if you don't do that. And, of course, all the research suggests that's completely foolish and wrong, that kids need – uh, first of all, the overuse component of uh, on a developing body of playing just soccer 12 months a year, or just basketball or just lacrosse is not good for a child's physical development. That kids get aren't really as complete athletes as you'd like them to be when they do different types of athletic activity rather than the same one. And, you know, Jamie, I heard yesterday in a meeting, which it had never really uh, I, I hadn't thought about this specifically, but one youth league leader was lamenting, you know, the, the, the excitement that came with a new sports season. And I, he mentioned that, and I remembered that. When you yeah. played two or, two or more sports, you'd, you'd end the season, and then there was excitement about starting the new sports season, a different experience, starting from scratch. And we're losing that in our sport, I think. You know, as kids, um, you know, play, and I think it's, again, it's not unique to lacrosse, but as kids are losing that sense of, of excitement on a change of sports season. And I think I heard Coach Petromala say this a year or two ago. He said, you know, kids in lacrosse play so many games now that games don't matter anymore. You know, you walk out in, in a tournament, you might play four or five or six games, and then you got another tournament the next weekend, and suddenly, you know, you're just out there playing yeah. without kind of, uh, you know, an excitement about a game in, a, in and of itself. Well, if you're a youth player at age 12, I mean, 10 or 12, you might be playing, I don't know, but in the course of a season, 50 games, more. So, you know, I, more is not better. Uh, better is better, and I think, uh, and I'm hopeful that through, you know, ideas is, is, you know, going back to the way a little bit, the way it used to be, unstructured play at younger age levels, smaller-sided play, and less supervised play um, is really what engendered a love of lacrosse and other sports in me. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Your, your guys' athletic development model is a topic that I want to dive into. Um, I really believe that the Sandlot is, is a different model entirely. And I think that's the thing that people don't really get. I mean, do we want our coaches to develop and give the kids more freedom and, 
you know, make things age specific and, you know, all of these things create, yeah, yes, we do. Um, but I think the thing that people don't really understand is the power of the Sandlot. You, there's, there are reasons why there are countries in this world that produce world-class athletes uh, with no coaching. And that's the, that's, that is the Iroquois. Uh, I shouldn't say no coaching, but it's mostly backyard. That's, that, that's the, these small Caribbean countries that are producing, you know, MLB players at incredible rates. Um, you've got soccer played all over soccer. the yeah. world. And, and, and they, you know, the, our country has invested more money in soccer and development and coaches. And the fact is, is that model doesn't work. Christian Pulisic, our greatest American soccer player, did you see the 60 Minutes? um episode they had about uh, about yeah. and, and and his parents basically saying well we we had one practice in, in one game or two practices in one game a week and we didn't play on some special club they didn't go into detail about what he did but i guarantee you he was playing pickup soccer the entire time and that is how you learn the game and so yeah. i made a commitment to this myself because i as you know i i i, I was the founder of 3d lacrosse you know a, a really you know proud time in my life to create an organization that really cared about coaching and, and player development. But when I was when when I sold, I was able to sort of step back and look at the world and say, okay, well I've got a daughter that wants to be a lacrosse player, but she also wants to be a field hockey player. And what are we going to do about this? And we just committed to playing for an hour once a week. We played pickup. We got boys and girls, kids from around the neighborhood, high school kids, you know, like different ages, and these kids enjoyed it and they will all tell you that it was the most impactful development that they, that they had. And it was like literally just in front of my street on a Sunday afternoon, they were all playing other sports. Uh, there was no pressure. You play with a tennis ball, small net. And I'm such a strong believer in this. I literally talk about it on every single podcast. It is the entire, I have a development model like you guys that I am proud of. I am, I am a coach and I'm proud of that, but I cannot teach what the game can teach and practices are not it's not possible to craft a practice that's going to give you the type of opportunities that a three-on-three -three game in the street can give you over the course of time so i'm really uh, passionate about this and, and i know you are too no we're al absolutely aligned i mean you know at the end of the day um the goal you know, if you want to grow the sport it's got to be fun uh, and, and the really the ultimate goal, the best the best coach at any level is the coach that can engender a feeling in his or her players that they want to come back and play again the next year. You know that really is the measure of a successful youth coach, in my opinion. Uh -huh. And um, you know the the, the and however we do that, I, we agree clearly that you can't project adult values on children and expect them to have fun, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so whether it's unstructured play or we, we break, you know, we need to break down the youth lacrosse experience so it's more fun longer, not the drudgery of practice, 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 tournaments, you know, every weekend, getting in a car, traveling hundreds of miles. I mean, there's, there there's a time for that, for a more, more specialized training, yeah. right? But early on, throughout the youth sports experience, and to me, that's, you know, I, I like to separate. Um, it's hard to do, but, you know, once kids hit high school 
all bets are off, right? When we were ninth graders, we were competing against 12th graders, right? I mean, that's always the way high school has been. But prior to high school, and, and you know, to me, as much as we can make it fun, and um, that really is the, the real measure of, of success for our sport moving forward, how we're going to get to 2X and 3X participation. That's key. Totally agree. Let's change gears here. Um, very exciting times with uh, the potential of lacrosse in the 2028 Olympics. Would you just uh, give us a little bit of uh, some thoughts in, in, on, on everything from, you know, how it came to be, what needs to happen, uh, the rules, um, and so on and so forth? Yeah, I, you're going to have to cut me off because I could talk a long time about this. but. Hey. I'm very, I'm proud to be uh, uh, one of my volunteer roles as vice president of the Federation of International Cross, and, and I'm in my, I guess, third year um, on that board. And we've, you know, the, the FIL for many years was a hand-to-mouth organization like many lacrosse organizations were, and we're very fortunate over the last couple of years to generate some strong philanthropic support to really fuel uh, the sports development uh, internationally and towards the ultimate goal of returning uh, the sport to the Olympic program. And so there's a lot happening in that regard now that we have greater resources, which have enabled us to uh, in, you know, hire uh, really great leadership uh, led by Jim Shear, our CEO, who's the former um, CEO of the U.S. Olympic Committee and who um, is incredibly passionate about uh, that goal of returning lacrosse to the Olympic program. Um, we had, uh, you know, what I think is arguably one of, if not the most um, historic moments for our sport when the International Olympic Committee provisionally recognized the FIL back on November 30th of 18. That is a huge step in, the, in our sport's global uh, growth and development. Um, the the FIL, FIL has up to three years, uh, but not necessarily three years, uh, we could do it sooner to uh, move that provisional recognition to full recognition by the, the IOC. But that recognition is step one in terms of um, the IOC considering lacrosse as, um, as uh, back in the Olympic program. So what are we doing now? Um, our goal is to position the sport to be uh, considered for inclusion in the 2028 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. And, um, and we have a series of a, a lot of balls moving to, to try to best position the sport uh, for that achievement. We've got, uh, we're fueling, thanks to again, greater philanthropic support, uh, fueling significant, more and more international development efforts we're hiring additional staff. Jim is hiring additional staff to lead key areas um, of organizational development. Uh, we're looking at the world championship platform, its entire structure, cadence, et cetera, to make that a more successful uh, event, both in terms of marketing the game internationally and, and generating revenue to help the FIL be self, more self-sustainable. Uh, we're looking at the FIL's governance structure, trying to be a more, um, a more re uh, less reactive and more proactive organization on behalf of our members. Um, and we're building relations um, uh, two ways, really. One, 
we're building uh, relations uh, relations with the within the IOC structure. Our president Sue Redfern, who's London-based, and Jim uh, and Ron Balls, who's also a member of our board, are kind of the tip of the spear in terms of building relationships with the within the IOC infrastructure, attending IOC meetings, um, which is a significant time commitment because they're all over the world. Um, and as Jim likes to say, making sure that our organization and our sport is known, liked, and trusted within the Olympic family. Yeah. At the same time, we're trying to build, begin to build relationships and raise awareness uh, with the LA Host Committee, uh, head by, headed by Casey Wasserman. Um, there's an opportunity for us to be included in the 2028 program if um, the host is supportive of that uh, addition. Um, there is some flexibility within, within the Olympic, the, the IOC rules and regs uh, about the Olympics that allows a host country to uh, request sports that are outside of the existing core program of competition to be included in their respective uh, Olympic Games. And what we're hopeful of is that we can make the case that lacrosse, because of its cultural heritage in the United States, because the excitement of the sport, because of the dy dynamism that will be added to the Olympic Games as a result, will uh, uh, that, that it'll be something that the LA committee will want to strongly consider. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, as, as, uh, I'm sure you'll ask me some questions about the, um, uh, the, the rules that have been drafted as trial yeah. rules. Um, you know, that's uh, been interesting to see some of the reaction to those, some positive, not, some not so positive. Um, but it's really all about uh, squad size. You know, the, the IOC has capped the number of athletes at Olympic Games. Uh, to, to contain costs. And so what's really driving um, what those rules look like or have been proposed to look like is driving the squad size down significantly so that that's not an impediment to our consideration for the games. And then the rules and duration of the game, size of the field, really all emanate from a, a smaller squad size. And I'll close, I'll close maybe by and wait for your questions. You know, a lot of people are going, well, why do, why should we want to be in the Olympics? We don't need to be in the Olympics. Um, you know, if we can't play traditional 10 on 10 uh, on a full field, then we shouldn't pursue the Olympic opportunity. And I just flat disagree with that. You know, I think we already have multiple disciplines of the stick and ball game now. Um, you and I are just talking about trying to make the game more fun, less structured. Um, and I think, um, you know, it all speaks to what Terry Foy, the publisher of Inside Lacrosse, said recently, which is, you know, um, unless you can define what lacrosse is, it's hard to say what it isn't. And so I, I truly believe that the, the, the pinnacle of, 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 of a sport in the world is to achieve Olympic program status. It's the biggest sports marketing opportunity in the world. It would, it would help us to, obviously, it's an understatement to say that inclusion of the sport in some version would be 
a game changer in terms of international growth development awareness. And, um, and I just think um, not, not trying our best uh, to, 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 to find a, di a, new, a discipline of lacrosse to qualify for the Olympics would be a big mistake. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, I think that a smaller sided version of the game to be able to get us into the game is a no brainer. I think some people say, well, why don't we just play box lacrosse? <laughs> and uh, it's probably a good question other than the fact that, you know, you can't bring a million rinks in there. Um, but um, the small sided version of the game, it will be amazing. Um, you know, I, I have my opinions on the rules uh, and I don't think we need to get into them right now as far as how they're doing it. Um, I'm sure that, that those in charge are going to make the adjustments necessary. Um, it's going to evolve, but to be able to get our foot in the door and to be able to create legitimate international growth of our sport uh, is going to be incredible. It's not like um, they quit playing rugby union just because they play sevens uh, in the Olympics. Um, it has brought great notoriety to the sport of rugby and will be the same for lacrosse. So yeah, incredibly exciting stuff. Um, next topic, national teams. Uh, we've had some big wins lately. Um, with our uh, U.S. national teams, um, and um, I'm just curious to hear a little bit about the plans for uh, what you guys have with your development teams now. Um, how did this come about, and how excited are you to team up with the PLL and uh, the WPLL to create opportunities for, what is it, U15 and U17 athletes to be able to um, begin training with some of the best um, players in the in, in the country and, and, and uh, be able to uh, some you know be able to get into a a, a feeder system uh, per se. Yeah, I mean it's, this is a component of our uh, our, our new strategic plan, uh, which consists of five areas of priority and eighteen specific goals. But one of those five areas of priority is really. Uh, expanding uh, the, the U.S. team program and brand. Um, you know, we, we spend, depending on the year, you know, there, there are five, or currently five FIL World Championships under 19 men and women, senior men and women, and men's indoor. And so, and they play uh, World Championships on a quadrennial basis. So, uh, actually, this year happens to be the year where we're sending two national teams to FIL World Championships, under 19 women and uh, men's indoor. Um, but so we spend more than any other nation uh, by far uh, on our national teams, um, and we'll continue to try to increase our investment in the national teams, Not certainly not to the detriment of all of the resources and investment we make in grassroots development. But we feel that the national teams are certainly among the best players in the world. They have a very powerful brand that, that uh, is inspirational and aspirational, um, and that, that making those teams more publicly accessible and, and having those teams travel more places in the course of the year, even in the out years of world championships, is, is incredibly valuable promotion for the game to kids throughout the country. So increasing the accessibility of our existing national teams is a big part of that strategy. As you, as you suggest, another part of that strategy is expanding the opportunity to get a national team experience. And we've never had um, really opportunities at younger age levels, primarily because they're, they're, we haven't had the resources to do it, nor has there been really the urgency to do it because there's not a world championship to prepare for at those younger age levels. But we really feel for the same reasons 
that um, that the opportunity to provide a national team experience and identify a pipeline of, of national team players is important to the future of our program. And, you know, part of why we put national teams together is to be successful on the field, um, to win. And it's not the only reason, but it's primarily, it's, it's the primary reason is to compete and, and succeed in competition. And the, you know, the, while the, the international competition equity is not as broad as we'd like it, you know, um, the fact that it, it, it will get more competitive over time. And yep. certainly the, the, the competition we have with, the, with Canada and the Iroquois, um, among others, uh, is very intense. And uh, the margin of victory is razor thin. Um, so we think we need to invest more to, to expose younger kids to the national team brand to, um, to, as I say, to kind of drive that inspiration and aspiration into kids' minds at younger age levels, give them, um, you know, kind of a, an exposure to the national team way, which ultimately incorporates training uh, from national team coaches and players on a regional basis and then kind of funnels up to um, kind of U17 and U15 teams that can compete against Canada and other teams annually. Um, so we're excited about that. Again, it's all about expanding the national team experience and brand nationally and, and giving more kids the opportunity to have that exposure. So right now it, it, it consists of um, a, a regional tryout and then sort of a, a, a camp, you know, that where all these, you know, top 80 kids from each grade level or, or age level can come in and, uh, and, and train and compete. And then from there, there may be uh, events that begin to get rolled into the mix uh, with uh, opportunities to compete against other countries. Generally speaking, yes. So kids have a chance to be assessed uh, kind of through a standardized, uh, you know, program and then ultimately invited to regional camps. And then ultimately, uh, you know, the regional camps will roll up to these, um, these kind of national squads for U17 and U15 that would, as you say, have the opportunity for competition once a year. Um, it's a case we're, we're kind of launching it this year and launching those regional kind of evaluation camps. And that's uh, why we're partnering specific, you know, primarily with the WPLL and PLL in that regard, because, um, you know, their, their, um, you, you know, their, their professional model has, as you know, is a circus model where they're going to, I guess, 12 different markets over 14 weeks. And those markets provide us a wonderful opportunity to give kids in those regions a taste of this, uh, the opportunity to be evaluated. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, we're piloting it this year. We're at, I don't know, six, eight uh, sites uh, in terms of those regional camps. And then the goal is in October, November, to have, you know, that, um, that national squad for 15U, 15U, 17U compete actually at U.S. Lacrosse HQ against Canada. 
So there will be one, one squad or will there be like, you know, four squads plus a couple Canadian squads to give more kids an opportunity to play or is it just kind of boiling it down to, you know, 20 kids against the Canadians top 20 or something? Yeah, the idea is, is right now two teams, whether we limit that to 23 um, yeah. and 18 uh, is, is, is to be determined. We may have a 30, 30 person squad for, for the girl, for both, for all four teams. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's been uh, finalized yet, yeah. but I, I'm guessing that we'll probably have four teams, you know, two men's, two, two, two girls, two boys, and there'll be a little larger squad sizes than would international play would typically allow. Sure. Hey, are you guys going to extend this into box lacrosse? It seems like a natural next move. Yes. I mean, if the box game is something that we are – the challenge for us, Jamie, is just um, bandwidth. And, and human and financial resources. Yep. So as a nonprofit organization, you know, just there's so many demands on our uh, volunteer staff and finances um, that it's all a balance of priority. And I encourage your listeners to go to our website and take a look at our strategic plan that I referenced earlier and the, those five areas of priority, the 18 goals. And, you know, we, it's just a balance of resources. And so, until recently, our, you know, kind of bandwidth to, to really take on box in a more meaningful way has just been limited. Right. But that is the plan. That is absolutely the plan is that we, we, we want, you know, we, we want to make sure that we're investing in the development of all disciplines of lacrosse, uh, the indoor version of the game and the outdoor version of the game and everything in between are all very important to developing, you know, the 360-degree lacrosse athlete. Yeah, so we, Yep. So we want uh, – and, and we, we've, we're we far behind Canada and the Iroquois um, in terms of our development of indoor players. And as you know better than anybody, you know, there are a unique set of skill sets um, that, that, that take – you can't automatically transition from the field discipline to the indoor discipline and expect success. Yeah. You've got to, uh, to really invest in, in developing athletes for that discipline. And uh, as most people have noted, uh, the most, one of the most important, the most important, you know, position in the indoor game is goal. And we've got to invest more significantly in developing goalies as well for the indoor game. How many – do you have any idea offhand how many total participants uh, there are in the sport of lacrosse in Canada? You mentioned 850,000 all in for – in the U.S. Is, is, it, is it 150,000 in, in Canada? I haven't yeah, – I think that's – the last number I heard, Jamie, is probably about that, 150 yeah. maybe, and it's growing. Um, so um, I, I think one of the points you're making is – how, how is Canada beating the United States when uh, they've got a fraction of yeah. participation? And, and I think it's a great question. As I said, um, as I tell our folks internally, no, nobody spends more time and money on their national teams than, than the United States. Yet, and as you probably know, there's, there's a big uh, issue in Canada most recently because Canada, the players thought, we're not was not spending the Canadian Cross Association was not spending enough uh, financial resources on its national teams. Right. But um, the question is, it's not a matter of necessarily money. It's a matter of strategy. And so um, 
we've got to look at how we're developing play more well-rounded players in the States. And certainly that, that hybrid that you really led the development of between indoor small-sided play, indoor play, and, and field play is, is, is really, I think, the secret sauce that Canada has. It is. I mean, I don't, I don't care who you are. You will develop better players with the same coach and the same team, same group of kids, same amount of practice time in box across your, your players will develop more because of the environment does the teaching. Um, the, obviously the boards keep the ball in play and the shot clock makes you play faster and a smaller net makes you get to the middle. The smaller sided nature of it obviously gives you more reps and more ability to be creative. You must bring players together to create space. Uh, and that's two man game. It's easier to get open on a cut than it is a dodge. And all of these things add up to a player that develops a higher level of skill and IQ. And, and honestly, um, I did the uh, homework with uh, Mark Burnham and Darius Kilgore uh, before a podcast last summer in which we, we tried to figure out how many total Iroquois players there are. And these guys back of the napkin started adding up. All right, well, there's 120, uh, you know, on an on dog, uh, there's 560 in six nations. I mean, there's somewhere around 2,000, you know, uh, from, from their estimation. And, and, and it is quite amazing to look at, you know, so we've got 850,000. We spend more money on it, you know, and, and geez, uh, on a regular basis, everyone, you referenced it, um, driving every weekend, hundreds of miles, you know, all of these, you know, when really the, maybe the best model is these smaller sided games. And that's why it's great to see us across being able to finally get the bandwidth to take over the national teams and to really get behind box across. And if there were youth national teams where goalies could want to play the sport, you know, I think it would be incredibly exciting. So that's, that's great news. Uh, last topic in my most passionate topic is, is, and I know it's one for you too, is, is, is the ADM. Can you give us um, some of the, uh, uh, shed some light on the future of the athlete, athlete development model for U.S. lacrosse and maybe some of the technology uh, you guys are going to be using and any other updates that people would like to know about? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 yes, and, and probably P.J. Buchanan and others on our staff will be or much more who are trained uh, educators, quite frankly, uh, would be better positioned to give you a lot of detail. But sure. But generally, yeah, I mean, our we, we did not create the athlete development model. It really came out of uh, soccer and, and ice hockey. And uh, many of your listeners will remember who, who are familiar with hockey will remember the hue and cry that came out of ice hockey when uh, USA Hockey went to cross ice. And it was not, it was all about um, trying to make it fun, um, trying to make sure the kids weren't standing around, that they were moving and, and the small, to your, to your earlier point, you know, a, a developmentally appropriate version of the sport that um, that that kids could, uh, from which kids could learn, you know, spacing and touching the puck more frequently, all of it. And so we, uh, several years ago, we embraced that philosophy as well, and have invested more and more in it in terms of HR and and uh, educational resources and. I've really been a strong advocate for it, as you know. And also, as you know, lacrosse can, uh, we've got, um, you know, there, there are a few people who um, in, in our game that, that already know everything there is to know, like other sports, and are, you know, hesitant to, um, to um, kind of interrupt the way the sport has always been taught. And, 
Conversely, there are, there are many others in our sport who are very innovative and looking for opportunities to really um, think differently about the youth sports experience. And again, back to our earlier points, how can I get my kid, how can I get more kids to be excited about trying this game? How can I keep more kids wanting to come back next year and the following year um, to, to really develop uh, and enjoy the sport? So the athlete development model is, is really our effort to make the case that youth lacrosse should be reimagined, that how we segment kids should be reimagined, that the experience they have as uh, that is completely synced with their physical and cognitive development stages as evolving humans uh, really should be the basis for the lacrosse experience they receive. And we've been working very closely with more and more youth leagues um, to encourage them to take this on. Of course, you know, there, there, there's a lot of, uh, certainly there's a share of opposition, as I mentioned, against this. Parents are wondering why their eight-year-olds can't play a, a full field game, uh, that they won't, how are their kids going to be positioned for an athletic scholarship uh, if at age eight they can't play a full field game. Um, uh, and there are others within other folks within the game who are kind of relying back on the way things have always been rather than um, an innovative uh, point of view. But I think, Jamie, what we're seeing is greater and greater traction um, of this concept. We're seeing youth leagues who, uh, who, are, who have been piling it for a number of years come back with some amazingly positive results. You'd be surprised how, or maybe not, how few youth leagues actually survey their parents after a season. They get feedback from the parents about how they and their children enjoyed the experience, and best practice youth organizations do this. Um, and part of what we encourage youth organizations to do is just that. Survey uh, your, your parents and your families and, you know, if possible, your kids very simply at the end of each season. And the, the organizations that have, that have piloted the athlete development model, the small-sided versions of the game, it's amazing the, uh, the feedback they've received from kids and parents about how much fun the kids are having, that the coaches enjoy it uh, to a far greater degree. And so, you know, really, really trying to push more and more youth uh, organizations to embrace these philosophies rather than the way you and I were taught, which is at age eight, um, you know, trying to figure out how to run up and down a hundred yard field, which is really self-defeating. <laughs> it's true, but we had the advantage of the sandlot, so it really didn't matter. That's the thing that everybody doesn't realize is that the that what what we did at age eight, you know, was first of all, we you know, we hardly even, we, we might have had eight of those games in a year, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> we were playing other sports. We were playing our, our sandlot games. I mean, I think the thing that parents need to look at when because listen, parents are very invested, right? Parents want their kids to do well. Parents really want the best opportunity for the for the kids to follow their passions. We know this. They're, they're, they are going to do what they think is best. What they don't realize is what they should be, you know, do we need to measure fun 100%? So that, that needs to be something that that is always there. Um, but we also, if you want to measure development uh, beyond the fun factor, parents need to start measuring touches and more importantly, touches where, where there's decisions being made. 
and this is what TJ Buchanan did uh, a, 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 a presentation for me at the virtual lacrosse summit that I ran last January. And he talked all about the games, uh, you know, I think his title was small games that do big things. And most people don't really understand the value of not only small sided play in the touches that you get, but also these touches that are meaningful in the sense that there's actually things are contested. And, and what, what parents don't realize is that when you don't get a lot of touches, which you won't in the 10, in any game, I mean, I don't know if you've ever done the stats cause I do, you know, the average really good player touches the, in a club game touches the, touches the ball 15 to 20 times. That's, that's the really good player who might get three shots and two goals and two assists. Yeah. Yeah. The player that isn't as good touches the ball like five times a game at best. And it's fine because that's, that's the game and you're playing to win and you might not have a big role, but that's no way to get better. And so what people really need to kind of look at is, you know, the fun. And then am I having, am I touching the ball much? And if I'm touching it, am I touching it under circumstances that are having my kid, uh, you know, make, make decisions of any kind, you know, how to dodge somebody, how to make a pass, um, you know, decisions to move without the ball. These, these are the things that, you know, when I keep coming back to the sandlot, let's imagine a basketball player that only shot baskets in the backyard and went to practice. Uh, imagine if you were the basketball player that played two on two and three on three with your friends, you'd have a massive advantage. And that's really where we got to get to with our sport. In my opinion, I mean, all the coaching is incredibly important, but as you mentioned it, some coaches are uncoachable. In fact, a lot of them are, but, but the parents aren't, the parents are the powerful drivers of this thing. We can educate them. They will steer their kids towards the, their best opportunity. And right now they think that it's just getting on the team that wins games and travels. And really it has more that, that, that there's a, there's a piece to that that's, that's valuable, but, but it doesn't make you the best player you can. Um, so no, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And you're, you're absolutely right about parents. You know, the parents, you know, are, are the consumer, you know, they're making the decisions on behalf of their kids. The kids obviously don't know any better. So, uh, you know, trying to educate parents uh, to a greater degree is absolutely the, the opportunity and challenge. Of course, there are a lot of influencers out there that, um, that parents are seeing and touching more frequently that may not have the insight that you have uh, about the importance of, uh, you know, the, a small-sided play and touches and, you know, scooping under pressure. I mean, we often, it's ironic, you know, and, and every, I happen to believe that every, any activity a child undertakes that's physical in nature is a wonderful one. If it's soccer, awesome. If it's yeah. dance, fantastic. If it's baseball, great. But some sort of um, athletic endeavor that, get kid, gets kids, get, that gets kids moving. And we often you know, uh, talk about the spring comparison between baseball and lacrosse. And um, there, there's certainly nothing wrong with baseball, with a point that's often made, particularly in youth baseball, is that it's darn hard to hit the ball. So if you're in the field as an eight-year-old, as a left fielder, how, how many times are you going to be able to have an opportunity to field a ball, right, in a game? Well, we're seeing the same type of issue in, in youth lacrosse when it's a full eight-year-old or 10-year-old full-field uh, full field game, 110-yard game, right? The same issue is occurring, to your point. Kids aren't touching the ball. They're not. They don't have an opportunity to scoop it or make a play. And 
Um, they may be running up and down, which is good in a sense, but it's not improving their technical capability. It's not improving, uh, which is, I think, just as important as their technical capability, their confidence in uh, in trying to, to think and, and do more stuff. So, uh, again, we're in violent agreement on this one. Yeah, I love it, Steve. Hey, I want to just thank you so much for coming on this podcast and updating us on all the exciting things that are going on within the sport of lacrosse. Um, and um, it is uh, was enjoyable because I think we do share a lot of the same uh, values and certainly the same passion for this great game. So thanks again, Steve, for coming on. Jamie, my pleasure. I really appreciate all you've done uh, to really raise the, the, the bar on educating coaches, but also really challenging the status quo and helping us uh, really think differently about our sport. Thank you. Have a great day, Steve. Thank you. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com.